You are listening to Future Voices, a podcast brought to you by Beha Futures Foundation. Hey, hey! Welcome to Futures Voices and our third episode. Today, we have a special guest who is a big friend and a supporter of Bosnia and Herzegovina Futures Foundation. He helped us immensely over the past few years in creating strategic partnerships and in implementing some projects. His name is Petar Stojanov. Petar, welcome to Future Voices Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to, uh, to be your third episode and uh, to join you guys over there in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Petar, you navigated through a number of careers as an academic, experimental scientist, corporate intrapreneur and entrepreneur, and you also focus on turning the art of disruptive innovation into a science. So it is not wrong if we call you an innovator. How would you describe yourself? So I get this uh, question asked a lot, uh, Kiran, and the thing is that the way I would describe myself, I would say, is as a scientist turned problem solver. So one of the advantages that we have in science, of course, is when we're trying to solve problems, the problems that we solve are really, really challenging. And what that yeah. means then, when you, when you think about it, the, the complexity of the problems we're trying to solve um, in the discipline, especially in basic research, which is what I was doing. My, my PhD was in experimental quantum physics. And mm -hmm. the complexity of the challenges means that you really have to seek to find interesting solutions. And if you take that um, philosophy and you start to map it towards solving um, complex business innovation challenges, then what might yeah. have been really easy in science suddenly becomes um, you know, really easy in business. And so that's a really positive yeah. thing that we're able to um, take that philosophy of how we solve problems in science and we mm -hmm. map it to solve um, business challenges. And that really comes to this point about the difference between business and science. Business, mm -hmm. it's about doing things right. But in science, it's about doing the right things. And so what I discovered very quickly when I moved from a scientific career into uh, a business career or in a corporate uh, setting Mm -hmm. was that suddenly that skill set became um, really useful in solving those business problems. And the reason is that yeah. when businesses are trying to innovate, they're trying to do things they've never done before, and they're trying to create solutions that they might never have created before. And that yeah. sounds exactly like a science experiment. Yeah, so it's an interesting combination, actually. Yeah. Now, you are currently in Dubai, where you are managing partner at a company named Eptikar. Did I pronounce that right? It's it's not bad. Eptikar. <laughs> Eptikar. Okay. Which means innovation in Arabic. And you are constantly looking for innovative solutions for your clients. And this motivates you to always search for more new ideas and possibilities. Am I wrong? Is there something I missed about your current job? So that's a really interesting description. Um, a lot of the times when we work with our clients, what we tell them is we don't actually have a solution to sell. So we are what we call uh, solution agnostic. What we instead mm -hmm. do is look at the problems that the organizations are facing. And, um, and from the problems, we try to distill so that we can arrive with surgical precision on what it is that's going to be the solution. I'll give you a couple of mm -hmm. examples. Um, Eptikar's yeah. future, future mobility is something that we believe, uh, our team and I believe very strongly in, in Eptikar. 
And so there's a couple of really interesting use cases in uh, future mobility that I wanted to share with you. The first one was yeah. with, um, with Dubai Police. And what the transport and rescue team of Dubai Police asked us to do was to work with them on developing their future mobility roadmap. And so the first thing, of course, is that you have to understand that mobility plays a role in crime fighting. So we needed to understand yeah. not what the role of cars or mobility would be in, in, um, in the future, but what crime would be like in the future. And so what we did mm -hmm. was actually mapped out a couple of really interesting scenarios. And one of them was that crime would become physically separated or geographically separated from the person it was happening to. And I'll give you an example. Imagine nowadays, yeah. if I'd like to take money from you, that I'm going to have to get at your wallet. And of course, your wallet is very close to you. It's usually in your back pocket. But imagine yeah, a future. Always. Exactly. Sometimes we keep it in our front pocket um, just, to confuse, <laughs> yeah. just to confuse the thieves, right? So imagine yeah. a scenario in the future where you use a cryptocurrency, which is mandated by the government to become the, the new de facto standard. And so what that means then is that money is not actually being held but what you have on your mobile phone is a pointer to a digital location where your money is being held on some sort of an exchange. And so yeah. what that means is that your money is actually now going to be stored at a place where you can't protect it. And so it's up to somebody else to protect it for you. And that's what these, for example, these crypto exchanges are about. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll hear, I'm sure, on the news that uh, so many crypto exchanges, it's not, the, it's not the blockchain itself inside the cryptocurrency that's being hacked, but it's instead the crypto exchanges that are being hacked. And so what you can imagine then mm -hmm. is that the nature of crime, just in this one example, the nature of crime is going to change so differently. And so what we were looking at is how does mobility play a role in this ever-changing nature of crime? And so what we went and discovered mm -hmm. was that actually police vehicles at the moment bring police officers to... Uh, the crime scene. But what happens if we yeah. don't know where the crime scene is, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, and so that was... Digital world. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So what we figured out was that what you want to do is identify the place where that crime is happening in the digital domain and actually um, mm -hmm. dispatch a set of drones. And those drones would act as a swarm and electronically surveil the place where this uh, crime was actually happening. So they could, for example, wow. block the internet connection or they'd be able to put some sort of a mesh network around, for example, <laughs> uh, a building. Yeah, so they no isolate the... Exactly, exactly. And so the, suddenly that... Thief, yeah. Yeah, and so that gave us an even more interesting um, scenario, which was that uh -huh. the car itself, because this, these guys in the transport and rescue team actually build customized vehicles. And I'm sure... Um, I'm sure you've seen, as everybody does, that the oh, Dubai yeah, police... the luxury Dubai police cars. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had the fortune and, um, and the pleasure in working with the transport and rescue team, which I'm very honored to, to have been able to do, of course, our entire team, um, yeah. that we've been able to go inside that garage and actually see all of those vehicles. And, those uh, Lambos, Mercedes, and everything else, yeah. Everything, yes. They have an incredible uh, collection of vehicles. And so what they're really trying to do in that case is to imagine what the future of these vehicles is going to be. And so part of their fleet is, of course, a range of supercars. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't want you and any of your listeners to think that that's the only thing that they're about because they have some really interesting insights into what mm -hmm. crime-fighting vehicles of the future are going to look like. And so really the approach that we wanted to take was when we did these foresight exercises, 
As we understand that the nature of crime is going to change, so too will how the police responds to it. And one of the big problems yeah. is also that when you think about it, crime fighting has to go through rules and regulations, right? There's due process. There's a way that you have to fight yeah. crime. But Rules and everything, yeah. Exactly. But the thing is that with crime itself, crime doesn't adhere to any laws or any jurisdictions or any regulations. And so when you're the person doing the crime, you have no rules that stop how you do crime. But of course, the police yeah, officer... You just have to find a way. Exactly. And so there's something inherently innovative about crime. Um, and so what we've tried to do is to, to move from this reactive or lagging approach to crime fighting to move instead to an anticipatory approach to crime fighting, one where the police officers actually predict and preempt what the crimes will be, and they try to stop mm -hmm. them before they even happen. And so we, of course, look at this from the mobility standpoint, but it was interesting to see then how our work later translated. And one of the really interesting results of that was that when we presented to the commander of, or the, of the chief of police of Dubai, um, he actually was uh, impressed with, with what we're able to put together. And uh, yeah. he's actually allocating some significant resources for us to be able to build up a crime uh, prediction and prevention center and to be able to mm -hmm. explore the engineering innovations that we're actually looking into creating and to bring them into reality, which is, of course, a very positive outcome. Wow, that, that really sounds like a really, really interesting project. Yeah, so we have uh, another one, actually. I have another couple of uh, hats that I wear, and one of them is with yeah. uh, Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. And what mm -hmm. Hyperloop is doing, you must have heard about it. Of course, Elon Musk uh, wrote a paper in, in 2013. Yeah, yeah I, th that's what I was about to say. Yeah, <laughs> Elon Musk is trying to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So whilst Elon Musk is trying to do it, um, there are other entities that are much, much further forward. And one of them, of course, is Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. And mm -hmm. um, they're solving a, a real problem in transportation. And transportation really is a mess because uh, most of it at the moment is based on fossil fuels. So we're burning yeah. fossil fuels and, you know, I like to call it dead dinosaur blood. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, burning, we're burning fossil fuels in an attempt to, um, to, to, to transport uh, ourselves and also uh, cargo and freight. And it's really messy. It takes far too long. It's a very bad experience because, you know, when it's for passengers, it just takes far too long. For example, if you're flying, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, have to move from a city center to, um, to an airport, then to go through all of yeah. the customs and the check-in and all of that, you know, check your bags. Then finally it's get... boring, time-consuming, yeah. Boring, time-consuming, it's uncomfortable. And then finally get to the other airport on the other side. And then you have to go another 30, 40 kilometers into the center of the city. And so we re yeah. when you reimagine what the problem is, remember FTCAR is about problem solving. So when you imagine the fundamental problem that we're trying to solve here, all that people want to do is to get from the footstep, from the from their doorstep in, the, in their home to the doorstep mm -hmm. of their office. And their office might be in this city or in another city. And so when we look at solving the problem of transportation, we want to solve it from a much more holistic viewpoint than we're doing at the moment. And that's where Hyperloop is not simply the pod in a, in a vacuum tube, but it's instead Hyperloop is more about thinking about the entire process or this holistic process of moving people and cargo from one place to another. And so Make, our, making life easier, actually. 
Exactly. And at the end, it's a human-centered problem, right? So part of uh, yeah. FTCAR is that we use a human-centered design and we combine that with strategic foresight and the scientific method to solve complex innovation mm -hmm. challenges. And so, of course, you can't have the science and the engineering without having also the, um, the problem from the perspective of the person you're trying to solve the yeah. problem for. You have, to use it. you have to use it somewhere, yeah. Exactly. And that's one of the challenges, of course, also with, um, uh, with all of these things that we're trying to do is that we're, we're needing to apply technologies um, in a domain perhaps where those technologies have never been applied before and, um, and really to, to rationalize or, or to try to figure out where those technologies can be useful uh, in a domain that really solves a problem. Um, with Hyperloop, uh, I'm the futurist in residence of Hyperloop. So what I'm trying to do mm -hmm. there is to try to predict and to build towards what the future of mobility and, and, and transportation is going to be. And so that's something that I do outside of my work with Epticard, but you can imagine that the two dovetail very uh, nicely yeah. together. Um, and one of the... Magnificent. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And it's so really magnificent. it's yeah. a real adventure, actually. And if you go onto social media, um, by the time this comes out, I actually have a picture of me with our chairman. I went to have lunch with him yesterday and we were discussing nice. for such a long time. And I told him about this podcast episode um, uh -huh. that I'd be talking about the future of mobility in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And um, so yeah. it's really it's really interesting because transportation is a problem that affects everybody everywhere. I mean, it's really a global yeah, it's problem. global problem. Yeah, exactly. And um, especially in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where it's a country that hasn't yet adopted certain technologies to be able to solve those problems for, for various reasons. Um, yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is that Bosnia-Herzegovina in particular, but all the countries also in the region, um, this presents them with a really interesting, whilst it's a challenge, it's also an interesting opportunity because you can imagine that sometimes if you have an existing technology, then you have to get rid of the mm -hmm. technology to be able to replace it with something else. And this is really yeah. at, the, at the crux of what we do in Epticard, which is disruptive innovation. You know, you've got these incremental mm -hmm. and core innovations, then you've got adjacent innovations, but then you've got disruptive innovations. And yeah. the real disruption is not when you begin with something and displace it to get something else. The real innovators, if you look at where I live, for example, in Dubai, why is it that mm -hmm. Dubai uh, and Abu Dhabi of all places in the world are the ones adopting these really interesting technical and technological innovations. It's because they're relatively young countries and they don't have uh, asset structures that have been sort of inbuilt into the country that they're still making some money from. Um, mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. actually have, they're starting from zero. They're starting with a, from nothing. So with a completely clean yeah. white slate. And I've heard That's why it's easier for them, yeah. Exactly, because sometimes it's hard to replace something that already exists. What's easier to mm -hmm. do is to replace nothing. So just to start from scratch. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that's where, where I see something very similar to where I am here in Dubai and to where you guys are over there in Bosnia-Herzegovina, that sometimes starting from scratch actually allows you the possibility to imagine something that's never existed there before. And so, yeah, because your actions can be faster. Exactly.
Now, your job and experience make you actually very, very relevant to talk about future and predicting the future, in fact. And that is what I want to do today with you. We will talk about some very trendy things and we will try to discuss and make some predictions, but we will not use any magic crystal ball whatsoever. I would like to focus on one very popular discussion that is going on for the last few months everywhere on the internet. It is about robots stealing our jobs. I mean, I also know that you have an article about this called Fighting the Robot Invasion and what do you think? Is it really possible? I mean, we know that it is because it is happening at the moment, but which jobs will disappear first? Right, so this is a really, really interesting question and in part of our practice when we look at future strategy, what we also have mm -hmm. to think about is which jobs are going to stay and which are going to go because this is very... I mean, jobs are so meaningful uh, for people in their lives and yeah. the, ways that, um, the ways that people express themselves, what gives people purpose in life often is their job. And so in the article Fighting the Robot Invasion, it was actually, interestingly enough, an article I wrote for something called the Elevate Forum. And it mm -hmm. was a forum that brings very powerful women together in the region. And uh, it happens to be, of course, that they allow some men to come along as well. So I was very privileged to be able to contribute an article to their um, forum, and it was called Fighting the yeah. Robot Invasion. And so when you look at it, um, really, let's sort of break it down from the perspective of the various industrial revolutions that have happened. So in the first industrial revolutions, uh, the machines replaced our mechanical efforts. So this is when we discovered that we could burn coal and we could create uh, steam engines and those sorts of things. And we created these first mechanical systems. And what that meant then was not that people were displaced, but that these machines augmented our human uh, mechanical effort. And then in the second industrial uh, revolution, we got to the point where we developed electricity. Of course, when we developed yeah. electricity, we developed heat. And so what that meant was mm -hmm. that that gave us energy in that way. In the third mm -hmm. industrial revolution with the rise of computers, what machines were now replacing was our cognitive effort. So what that means is our basic thinking processes it's clear that machines can make calculations much faster than we can and um, yeah. they can they can do things much much better than we can across many many disciplines but against a very narrowly defined um, uh, range of, of competencies but what's yeah. really interesting now is that we enter the fourth industrial revolution and this is what people call the cyber augmented uh, revolution and this is where computers mm -hmm. will actually connect with us or augment us. And a lot of people say mm -hmm. that they don't believe that they're already augmented. But let me ask you, do you have a smartphone in your pocket? Of course. Exactly. So can you, if you're in a bar having a drink and one of your friends asks you a question and you don't know the answer, yeah. you can take your phone you out Google of your pocket. It. Exactly, you Google it. So yeah. in yeah. fact, you, yeah. have, you have quite literally all of the world's information at your disposal at any one time. So from an intellectual yeah. perspective, whilst you don't have that information in your head, you can access it so quickly that it doesn't actually matter that it's not on your you know, brain's hard drive. And so what's yeah, interesting yeah. here, yeah, and so, and so what's interesting is that the human brain thinks and learns linearly. So in our human brain, the, the biochemical composition of our brain means that we can only really learn linearly, we learn pretty slowly. But the thing is that yeah. if you think back to, uh, from an engineering perspective, some of the nerds out there will remember Moore's law. So the idea was in Moore's law that the number of transistors on a chip will double every 18 months. 
And so that mm -hmm. number was really, really slow at the beginning. But then, of course, like anything being exponential, we're at the stage now we have hundreds of millions, if not billions of transistors on single pieces of silicon wafer. And so what that means yeah. is that machines are developing and evolving at an exponential level where we as humans yeah. are only Extremely evolving. Extremely fast. Yeah. Exactly, on a linear level now. So what does that mean for the future of jobs? Well, given the fact that computers are growing in terms of complexity and in, in terms of arithmetic ability and all of those sorts of things, what we're creating now is the algorithms that are able to turn computers into replicating human effort. And so the idea here is mm -hmm. in, and the way not only the humans do things, but the way that they learn. And so you'll, of course, heard about um, uh, cognitive machines or machine learning or yeah. artificial intelligence. Yeah. But the thing that really drives them is the fact that the algorithms now are able to replicate the, the billions of neurons that we have in our head. And so the machines are actually able now, and the, the machines in combination with the algorithms are able to make us, uh, computers think like humans, think like us. And so what that means then is there are so many examples where humans are being replaced because when you mm -hmm. think about it, you don't use in your job your full cognitive ability, right? Yeah. And so when you think about it, how much would you say of your day-to-day -day work actually uses the full cognitive capability of your brain? For example, I'm at, in marketing and I constantly use, I don't know, it's either my cell phone, it's either my laptop so I can design something, record something, it's... I don't know, uh, camera so I can take pictures. It's actually a level of cognitive ability that I'm actually using is quite low, as you say. Yeah. So there's one point, but then think about it. You know, you're not differentiating equations or you're not thinking about the, the cosmological universe. You're just trying to get something yeah. done. And this is what 99.9% yeah. of people are, are actually doing. They're just trying to get some basic job done. And so what that yeah. means then you don't need to make a computer that is as sophisticated as the human brain. What you instead need to make simply is something that's able to replicate what humans do on their day-to-day -day job. And so this mm -hmm. is what's really interesting is an example um, of JP Morgan. And what JP Morgan did was try to replicate the human effort of a team of contract lawyers. So there's something uh, that JP Morgan's division does, which is high frequency trading. And in that, there yeah. are some regulatory papers that they have to fill in and some legal contracts and things like this that are very simple mm -hmm. to, to do, but they need to be looked over by lawyers. So th that particular activity is exactly the kind of thing that computers are good at and they're able to learn because yeah. it's very simple and it's very repetitive. So it's exactly the kind of thing that you can train a neural network to do. So how did they do it? Yeah. They gave the humans contracts and they gave the computers contracts the computer algorithm. And then what they asked the, the, the humans to do is to read the contract and make the amendments. And then they gave the contract before editing, and then they gave the computer the contract that the human had, had edited and asked the computer to compare the differences. And then what they did was kept yeah. on doing this. And so eventually what the computer came to understand was what was the contract like before and what was the contract like after in order to understand mm -hmm. what it was that the humans were doing. And so what happened yeah. at the end is once the computer had learned to replicate the human effort of these contract lawyers, then what they did was fed it the number of contracts that would have taken the humans in a year, 360,000 hours worth of work. And the computer yeah. was able to crunch that amount of, um, of contract sort of amendment 
in a much, much shorter amount of time. Do you want to have a guess how long it took the computer? A few, <laughs> few hours, maybe? So a lot of people say a few hours. Some people who are a little bit more in tune with how computers work say a few minutes. In fact, the algorithm, mm -hmm. the algorithm when it was given the opportunity to process 360,000 hours worth of human effort, did the same yeah. in 2.85 seconds. Imagine that. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's scary. That's scary, man. Exactly. And so when you look at it, it's not, it's not the work, uh, it's not the humans that they're replacing, it's the work that the humans do that the computers are replacing. And so then what has to happen yeah. when, when I look into the future, if I was to, <laughs> to take my imaginary crystal ball, of course, we're not using one, what I would um, yeah. look at then is to see where jobs move to. So what is it the humans are actually going to do? And it's going to be that humans... <laughs> because we will, so humans yeah, are, we will stay here. We, we will stay here. We have to do something, but what? Yeah, exactly. So, so what it means is that humans still need to have purpose in their lives. But uh, what mm -hmm. it will mean is that human effort is going to be pushed to what I call the interfaces, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, computers will do the work, but you still have to sell the computer system. And that, in the end, is a human effort. So what it means is that yeah. two humans are going to have to come together, some kind of a sales engineer and some kind of a, mm -hmm. a purchasing specialist, and they're going to have to communicate. And here is where the human influence, reading the human face, being able to communicate in a particular way, that thing is something that humans will not be able to, um, uh, that computers will not be able to replicate from humans as easily. But yeah. then there is something, but if we take this idea further, and if we're able to write algorithms and have sufficient computational and processing power, what it means then is that with big data and analytics, I can actually know everything there is to know about you. I can build a digital mm -hmm. profile of you as a person. Yeah, so a yeah. digital rendering of you as a person. I can identify on Facebook all of your likes and dislikes. And then what I can do is actually create narratives that are customized specifically to you, to your personality, and to your buying habits. And so what that means is that I can actually create an algorithm that makes you feel like the most special person in the world. And this yeah. is something that's really interesting because what it does is imposes on the thing that I mentioned earlier, which is that at the core, where humans will still be relevant is in human relationships. But I still believe that down the line, eventually, computers will be sufficiently advanced and have sufficiently advanced algorithms that they will be able to replicate that even digitally. So we will have digital yeah, personalities. Well, Jack Ma, the legendary head of Alibaba company, gave actually a very interesting statement last year. He said that the education in the future must be focused more on development of soft skills, such as empathy, relationship building, and report. And this actually proves our point. Do you agree with this, actually? Is this emotional side of us, let's call it that way, the only part that yes. robots actually will never be able to replicate? So I had the pleasure, actually, of meeting Jack Ma uh, very briefly. I gave a talk on wow. the, mm -hmm. on the uh, ethics of AI and exactly on the point that you just mentioned because this is something, obviously, a lot of people were, were thinking about. And Jack Ma is a really interesting person because he's had a very challenging uh, early career but then such an incredible career trajectory, of course, with Alibaba and, and yeah. other things. And so he's an interesting mm -hmm. person to give comments about this because I think he realizes given the fact that he's developing commuter systems and, and Alibaba's doing so many interesting things now in other areas of discipline. Um, one of the things that he stresses is something called the human element. 
So it's the thing that gives us consciousness, and it's also the thing that in most cases cannot be replaced. I'm yeah. a little speculative on this, and I really do believe that with a sufficiently advanced computer system and a sufficiently capable AI, um, that the human brain, because it suffers from so many cognitive biases, can be tricked. And there's, mm -hmm. um, there's something called, um, God, I'm, I'm missing the term, uh, the limit at which uh, a, a computer algorithm is indistinguishable. Asimov uh, talked about it, the mm -hmm. rule of Asimov, mm -hmm. that, um, that a computer cannot be distinguished from a human when you talk to it and speak to it. And I think yeah. we've already passed that limit, if I'm not mistaken. And so I do think, actually, mm -hmm. that you can build human empathy into an algorithm. And I also think that the human brain can be very easily tricked. And so whilst I agree with Jack Ma that the emotional aspect of humans will probably be the, the thing that's more challenging to replicate, I still think that eventually yeah. computers will get there. So I don't think it's going to be uh, human emotion that is the thing that is unique about humans in terms of the jobs of the future. You never know, right? We have to just wait a few years and see, see what happens, what the future brings. Absolutely. Now, since our target group are engineering students, can you tell us a bit more about what will engineering look like in the future? Will only engineers who create robots be left? Although a few weeks ago we saw a news where uh, artificial intelligence machine was used to create another artificial intelligence machine. So maybe robots will be making themselves in the future and we will be there just like fans cheering from the side, you know? This brings so many interesting questions. And there's a story I remember. So my, my father, when he migrated to Australia, uh, was working for the mm -hmm. Ford Motor Company. So Ford had a division in Australia to build uh, vehicles for the Australian market. And it made sense because mm -hmm. to build them in America or in any other country would have taken so long to ship them um, that it just makes yeah. sense to, to make them. Uh, it made sense to make them in Australia and also to make them for the unique Australian conditions because it gets quite warm in Australia, yeah. obviously very dusty because of the, uh, the sand that we have here sometimes when it blows in from the desert and so on. So they're quite unique conditions. Mm -hmm. To answer your question though, what will engineering look like? I would invite everybody to check out a guy called Maurice Conti. And mm -hmm. I'm sure, uh, Kenneth, that you'll give them a, a link. But there's a really interesting yeah, tech yeah. talk that he gave. So he works at Autodesk. And he talks about how engineering itself is going to, to change as a concept. And so at the moment when we input everything, for example, into, into an AutoCAD system, or into some sort of a 3D modeling or drawing system, everything that we yeah. put into that computer, we do ourselves. So if we want to extrude a shape, we extrude it. If we want to build a, a PCB or if we want to arrange some electronics, we literally have to put the PCB in place. We have to put the, mm -hmm. uh, the components in, although there's some really interesting work that's happening in PCBs that yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of that stuff's being replicated and, mm -hmm. and being done by computer. But at the end, we are still at the mercy of the computer to tell it really in explicit detail what needs to be done. But these guys at Autodesk mm -hmm. are doing something really interesting. What they're actually doing is creating scenarios where what you do is only give the computer the boundary conditions. So you would, what you say to the computer is, I want a, a, an object that is able to do X, Y, Z, 
It's able mm-hmm. to, uh, the mounting points, for example, are here and here in three-dimensional space. And then the computer yeah. tries to figure out, using evolutionary biology algorithms, is able to figure out mm-hmm. what the best shape is mechanically in terms of the stresses and the fatigues that you put into it. So you say, I want it to withstand the temperature of 500 degrees Celsius. I want it to have a torsional rigidity of this. And I want each one of those points mm-hmm. to be to be done in that way. And so what this algorithm actually yeah. does is builds the item millions and millions and millions of times. And that actually evolves the final shape so that it has all of the parameters that you put in. And this is, of course, revolutionary because we never built things like that before. And so sometimes we would over-engineer the devices that we create. Now, we're talking here about mechanical engineering, but the same Mm -hmm. concept could apply to any of the other engineering disciplines. But in mechanical engineering, it's really interesting because uh, what they actually did was built a race car and then allowed the mounting points of the wheels, the seating position of the driver, and the engine mounting position with a single determining factors. And then they allowed the computer to design the chassis by itself. And what's really interesting Mm -hmm. about what the computer designed was it looked like the internal uh, structure of bones inside the human skeleton. And that was really, really cool. Because what it does, of course, is in a computer, it goes through millions and millions of years of evolutionary biology, and it arrives at something that nature has evolved for us over those uh, millions of years. And so what's really cool then, and especially for engineers, is they'll still need to know the basics, but they're not going to need to know how to create the solution. Instead, what I feel, and this is singularly important, is they're going to need to understand Mm -hmm. how to figure out what the problems are. And so the focus Mm. in engineering is going to move from solution building to problem finding. And I think that's where engineering students in particular um, are going to move away from the solution towards identifying the problem. Hmm. So they'll instead of engineers are today being called like problem solvers, so they will actually be called like people who are looking for a problem, exactly. actually, problem. not solving them, but yeah. just finding problem. finding problem. the right problem. Yeah, Exactly, finding the right problem find, and being problem discoverers. And I think what's also going yeah. to happen is that people who are interested in the business discipline, I think they're going to need to mm-hmm. develop a more multidisciplinary approach. So I don't think you'll be able in the future to simply learn engineering. I think you're going to have to learn engineering mm-hmm. and business because the type mm-hmm. of skill set, because if the computer does what you do today as an engineer, then what it means is we're going to have to teach our students not only to become problem discoverers, but then also to understand yeah. what value does solving this problem have for the organization. And I think that... Yeah, multi- what to do after you solve it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, you also have Balkan roots, you, but you were born in Australia. And I believe just that just as any other Balkan person in diaspora... You are closely following situation and events here. So I would like to ask you how long until robotized work comes to Balkan or Bosnia? Do we have to wait for another 50, 100 years or I don't know? What do you think? So there's a really interesting uh, equation. And the equation is very simple mm-hmm. to explain. And what it means then is the challenge for automation is in labor cost. So if you look at the situation in Amazon, if I was uh, today mm-hmm. in Bosnia-Herzegovina, I'd be looking very closely at the American workers uh, in the Amazon factories. And at mm-hmm. the moment, they're fighting. They, they get very low salaries. In fact, so low yeah. that the government has to support their income with uh, stamps. 
you know, these food stamps and things like this. It's a very, yeah, very yeah. interesting situation. Yeah. So what it means is that Amazon de facto is actually taking these workers for less than what they should be paid in order to be able to survive. And the state yeah. is actually s supporting their income. And yeah. this tells you something very interesting. Because if they do indeed increase the minimum wage, as a lot of people are saying that they'd like to, what that would then mean mm -hmm. is that you change the barrier to entry to replace those people with competent robots. You see? Yeah. So the challenge mm -hmm. for automation is not whether you can do the automation. The challenge is when does it become possible through an incentive that for the company it suddenly mm -hmm. makes more sense not to employ humans but to employ robots. Yeah. And again, the challenge in the first world is in minimum wage. And my belief is that robots will begin to uh, replace people in countries where the minimum wage is sufficiently high that it doesn't make sense to apply mm -hmm. humans anymore for those wages. And yeah. mm -hmm. then it'll simply become more and more, uh, it'll make more and more sense to replace humans with robots. And remember something very important. Mm. Machines don't take days off. They don't get sick. Yeah. They don't need holidays. They don't get sad or depressed. Ideal. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't break up with their boyfriends don't and get girlfriends. Pregnant. <laughs> get yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Perfect, uh, perfect employees, actually. Exactly. And so from a manager's point of view, they literally are perfect employees. And, you know, they're the kinds of employees that you would want, just perfectly obedient. And everything, everything remember, that the industrial uh, age brought us. Because remember, yeah. the educational system that we have at the moment is a reflection of the industrial age that we needed those people to work in. So that's why when, exactly. you do, yeah. when you do tests and you're given a multiple choice test, that multiple choice test has one answer and all of the other three answers are wrong. But one of the interesting things is when you leave school, uh, what you come to discover is the world is not black and white like the tests that you took. Instead, it's really yeah. multiple shades of gray. I don't want to say 50 shades of yeah. gray, but it's multiple shades of gray. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's really interesting. <laughs> Very colorful, yeah. Very colorful. Now, we discussed, we discussed technical side of work, who will do what and what we can expect in that area. But what about companies? What will future companies look like in terms of culture, organization of work and everything else that companies... So this is really, for me, what's so exciting about working in future strategy and trying to predict the future is in trying to figure out what the companies that these people are going to work in uh, are going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so imagine in the Industrial yeah. Revolution, when we look back, people created value proportional to the amount of time that they spent doing it. So if you and I uh, Kenan, yeah. were sitting together and making horseshoes, you know, we were heating the metal in a furnace and then bringing it out and hitting it. Yeah. And let's say you were 20% yeah. faster than me at making a horseshoe, you'd be lucky to mm -hmm. make 20% more horseshoes than me. But yeah. now today, we don't trade our mechanical effort for work. Instead, what we do is we trade our knowledge and we trade our cognitive mm -hmm. ability. So what that means then today, if there's some knowledge you have that I don't have, that may help you create not an incremental increase in value, but maybe a tenfold increase in value. So if you know how to write a particular computer algorithm or something like this, that is able, as mm -hmm. we talked about in the JP Morgan example earlier, that it's able, yeah, yeah. if you can write an algorithm that replaces me as a lawyer, now you're doing something that produces exponentially more uh, value to the organization than what that organization is paying yeah. you. And also what it means is you can render entire departments and uh, or entire potentially even organizations completely obsolete. So what does that mean? Hmm. 
Here in Dubai, we have something called the Dubai 10X initiative. And what it seeks to mm -hmm. do is to automate all non-essential government services. Over 60% of the government employees here have some form of notary work, which basically means that mm. they're rubber stamping or they're doing something yeah. that is some part of a, a, a longer process. It's bureaucratic in nature. Mm -hmm. And what the government has said at the very highest level, at His Highness Mohammed, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, um, what he yeah. has said is that we want to replace those jobs so that people who are working in them are able to, explain, uh, to express their human creative potential. Yeah. So what it means is wow. if you have fewer employees creating more and more exponential value, you, you have to naturally assume that the structure of organizations is also going to shift. And what it means, first yeah. of all, is that organizations are going to have to fight much, much harder to keep their very best people. That people they become will, more valuable, yeah. Precisely, that people, your working contract will not be work 40 hours a week, but instead will be create mm -hmm. this kind of value for organization. And if you can work for an hour a week or an hour a month and create the value that you're going to create for your organization, then it's not the time that you spent. You won't have to work a nine to five job. You'll be able to work for as long or as little as you like. And you'll be yeah. recompensed based on the value you create, not the time that you spend. And this alone is an incredible, I mean, this will be a revolution in employment and in human resources. Yeah. And, and then think about something else, that if that is the case, the power that managers have over employees at the moment is because they're paid by the hour. But imagine the shift that's going to happen when employees are able to create exponential outcomes. Imagine what that means for mm -hmm. the employee-manager relationship. This is something that we <laughs> see already in sales. So your salespeople, yeah. um, it's not a, there's not a relationship sometimes in your salespeople between the amount of time that they spend selling and the amount of uh, value that they produce in their work. And so we see it already yeah. with salespeople that salespeople are treated very, very differently in companies to other workers. Mm -hmm. And the reason is yeah. that it doesn't matter how much time they spend if they create value. And what I'm going to suggest here is that as we move in the engineering disciplines into engineers that are the few engineers that know their subject matter expertise so well and so deeply that they're able to be the ones that create exponential value, I think that engineering companies, engineering firms that employ these people are going to change a lot. And also remember one yeah. final thing, that it's much easier than ever to start your own business and to become your own boss. If you look mm -hmm, at, for mm -hmm. example, some of the biggest companies that have Instagram pages, so we're all on Instagram or on yeah. Facebook or on other forms of social media, individual people can have 10 million followers and a really huge company might just have 30 or 40,000. So what's yeah. actually happened is that we've democratized access to people in social media. So a single person... Everyone can be famous, yeah. Everybody can be famous, but everybody can be, exp uh, everybody can be recognized as a thought leader. And this is the really interesting yeah. part, that your skills, it's not only what you do and what your expertise is, but it's being recognized by the international community at what you do and, and, and who you are and what you're capable of. And so you see this yeah. so much in, in people that write books, for example. Suddenly they become world famous because they wrote a book on a subject. And my belief is that this will trickle down into people with really high subject matter expertise in particular areas, are able to create value. And what's going to happen is that mm -hmm. these people will no longer work for companies and be paid by the hour. Instead, what they're going to do is become consultants, infopreneurs, people who know something and sell yeah. that 
And so what will actually end up happening is that those people will move from being an employee to becoming their own boss. And I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, so the companies as we know them today will probably not exist in the future, not at this shape, no way. No way. Not possible. Yeah, yeah. Now, since we are creating advice and tips for students worldwide, and we know the importance of entering the sector first, being part of it in its early beginnings, so here's my final question for you today. Now, if you were an engineering student today, let's say that you traveled back in time, with some sort of magic, what would your focus be on? Which engineering field has the highest potential in the future? What would you do? So we talked about this a little bit before, and actually my colleagues in mm -hmm. quantum physics are probably working on some sort of a quantum teleportation machine that's able to shift us back into the future. So your question is not as speculative as you might think. <laughs> Um, but what, <laughs> I would, not, what I would say, though, reality, yeah. yeah so, so for engineering students, if I was to have my time back, I have no regrets. But if I was to have my yeah. time back, I would say move from being a solution creator to problem solver or problem seeker and understand mm -hmm. that the value that you create is in solving the problem, not in creating the solution. Understand what the mm -hmm. problem is and understand that problem very deeply. So I call it the nature of the problem. In Epticard, we have a, mo a methodology. Problems have two factors. One is the nature. What is the problem? How big is the problem? How deeply is it felt? How does the problem manifest itself? And the problem also has, yeah. secondly, an extent. How large, how many people, what value, those kinds of things. And so then you connect the understanding of what is the problem and how much is the problem worth, or how big is the problem, rather, mm -hmm. to how much does it affect their business. And then what you do is to connect your solution to some fraction of the value that it is to solve the problem. So with a lot of engineering mm -hmm. students, because they lack business acumen, what that means then is they're not, they're not able to connect the reward that they create for the company with how much they should get paid. And I think this is where yeah. when we teach engineering, we're going to need to supplement engineering with business thinking. But it's not business thinking. Business in and of itself is boring. And I think for engineers, that's why they mm -hmm. build, they go into engineering because they like creating things. But what you have to realize yeah. is that there's a special area, there's an interface in between, between engineering and between business, where engineers are actually at an advantage compared to business people because their thinking process, having, having understood what it is to be an engineer and to think about those things in that way, gives them such mm -hmm. a strategic competitive advantage in comparison to business people. Because remember, business mm -hmm. people are trying to make money fundamentally. But engineers are trying to solve yeah, problems. Constantly. Yeah, constantly. Exactly. And so what they yeah. do, they actually think about the problem much more deeply, much more eloquently, and, and, mm -hmm. and much more um, holistically than the people in the business trying to solve the problems of business. And this is yeah. where I have a strategic advantage. And I feel that your listeners who are engineers also have a strategic advantage over business people in solving business problems. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So definitely problem seeking. There's a second thing that I think is really, really interesting, and that's in being able to tell a story and to be able to influence a person to your point of view. So it's not only enough to be able to know what's the problem and then to apportion value to it, but then it's being able mm -hmm. to communicate that in such a way that a person understands how you solve the problem and how you create value for them. Because it might not be obvious. Yeah. And the big thing that I've come to understand, uh, especially with engineers and also, I mean, in particular with my 
colleagues in, in physics is that they're not able to do this. And so the problem is that they might have great solutions, but in the absence of being able to tell people how great their solutions are, often their solutions just kind of get lost, you know, and they're unappreciated yeah, by clients and they're not really recognized for mm -hmm. the amazing work that they do. And so I yeah, think here... That's why they need us salespeople, yeah. Exactly. But I think they should become salespeople. So I think engineers becoming salespeople, having the engineering acumen, having the ability yeah. to explain things at a technical level, but then being... Then that's the... Yeah. This is the holy grail. Absolutely. Then that's and the these, great combination. The, way, the people that I see being successful, particularly in this region, so you can have really good subject matter experts, and then you also have mm -hmm. separately to that people who are not subject matter experts, but they're able to sell. But the really good yeah. people are the ones that are both subject matter experts and are able to influence opinion. And these are the people that I see here in Dubai, in the highest levels of government, in the highest levels of industry. These are the people who are truly successful, the multidisciplinarians. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed yeah, yeah, that yeah. in 90% in of my interactions with people that I work with, we work with a lot of government and, and large organizations. 90% mm -hmm. of my job is trying to influence particular thinking. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. not that I'm trying to tell them something bad. It's instead quite the opposite. I'm trying to influence or convince them of the fact that this is the best thing that they need to do moving forward. Because when I come in yeah. as an outsider, I offer a very different perspective, but I am also an outsider to their business. And so I have to communicate my understanding of their business, that I understand it well enough that I'm able to give them advice, and that I'm mm -hmm. intelligent and trustworthy enough that my advice is something that's actually good for them. And this has nothing to do with what the advice actually is, but it's to do with how well I'm able to influence that point of view. And this is where the young engineers that I would implore the people listening to your um, podcasts and who are listening to this mm -hmm. particular episode and deciding what to do with their lives, that yeah. when you think about the best solution, nobody cares unless you're able to convince them or influence them. And unlike school, the most valuable lessons that you learn in your life are not the ones that you actually learn in school, but instead that you ones the the experience that you, the experiences that you learn through life, and so that's for me yeah. a really important lesson to leave them with. That life experience at the end yeah. is what teaches you the most. Yeah. So, dear students, you heard. Now that was all for today. Without crystal ball, we managed to talk about future for a very long time. Petar, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this extremely valuable information with our audience. And I hope that this advice will be properly used everywhere by bright students, future great engineers. And I have to add that you kind of scared me a little bit because I'm thinking now, will I be without job in 10 or 20 years? What will I do with my set of skills? Like, yeah. But thank I, you so much. With anything, um, anything that uh, is taken away usually is replaced by something better. And I think the kinds of jobs that you would have had in 10 to 20 years that artificial intelligence... Uh, and robots will displace probably just means that you'll have a much mm -hmm. better job in the future. And I think that's a future worth looking for. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Great advice. Great advice. You can listen to our podcast on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Just type Bea Futures Foundation. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.